Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things. And sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are true crime producer Stephanie Lidecker and Kirk Nermy. Kirk is a former public defender turned legal expert and author. During his time in the courtroom, he defended hundreds of individuals against serious felony charges. He rose to fame when he defended Jody Arias during her high-profile murder trial from 2012 to 2013. Since leaving the public defender's office, Kirk has written eight books, including Trapped with Miss Arias. All his books are available for purchase now. Kirk can be found online at kirknermy.com. Episode 34, The Case of the Millionaire, The Sugar Baby, and Their Decade-Long Investigation. Bill McLaughlin always had big plans for his life. Growing up as one of three children in the south side of Chicago, he joined the Marines at 18 and moved to California. Bill became the first in his family to go to college and always wanted to make a difference, not just for his loved ones, but for the entire world. And a difference Bill made. In his early 30s, Bill developed a groundbreaking device that separated plasma from blood. It changed the medical field and made him a fortune to the tune of $55 million. When Bill was 27, he married his girlfriend Susan and they had three children together. With money being no concern, the family settled down in Newport Beach, a wealthy enclave in Orange County, California. Family was everything to Bill, especially his children. He bought a plane so he could take his wife and kids on vacation trips to the Grand Canyon. It's those moments that Bill's children like to remember, their father soaring in the sky. But tragically, everything that came later is what gets burned into their memories. On paper, Bill and Susan had a picture-perfect marriage, but Susan did not feel satisfied. And when their kids left for college, Susan decided to leave Bill after 24 years of marriage. This was in 1990. Bill was devastated. He loved Susan and was not ready to give her up. However, 
they were never able to reconcile. A year later, at 55 years old, Bill was feeling especially vulnerable when he met a woman named Nanette Johnston. Nanette also worked in healthcare and had two young children from a previous relationship. She wasn't just blonde and beautiful, she was also smart and driven. She was interested in Bill's business and wanted to help, something Bill's ex-wife never did. Despite his children being suspicious of Nanette, Bill was adamant she had good intentions and the pair quickly became serious. Within just two months of dating, Bill moved her and Nanette's two kids into his Newport home. He gave her a generous allowance and opulent jewelry. The couple traveled to Europe, went on luxury vacations, and skied atop snow-capped mountains. Soon, Bill proposed to the stunning bombshell, and she said yes. Nanette was living the life most women only dream of, but it would all soon come crashing down. Here's Stephanie. Well, we actually wondered how Bill and Nanette met, and it turns out it wasn't in such a traditional way. They actually met through an ad. Nanette had posted a personal ad in the local newspaper, and it was entitled Wealthy Men Only. The ad read that she was a single white female, age 25, 5 feet, 5 inches, 100 pounds, classy, well-educated, adventurous, fun, and knows how to take care of her man. So she was looking for an older man, 30 plus years, who knows how to treat a woman. And if you take care of her, quote, she will take care of you. So again, this wasn't the most traditional way of meeting somebody, but you know, this is a young woman, 25 years old, who's being very forthcoming and honest about what her needs and goals are. We do know though, soon after meeting, Bill took out a million dollar life insurance policy and made her the beneficiary. So you know, he was playing all in and things obviously were escalating very quickly. Kirk, this is a very divided question. And, you know, again, this is perspective, I suppose. An ad in a newspaper suggesting that you're looking for a man who's very wealthy, an older man at that. Is that anything that sort of legally sounds like prostitution or is that just totally legal and a woman asking directly for something she's looking for? These relationships that we characterize as, as sugar baby or sugar daddy, they do have that kind of element to it. But at the same time, really prostitution, when we talk about crossing that line into illegal, it really has to be a specific exchange. It can't be this general kind of you take care of me, I'll take care of you kind of relationship. So ultimately, that's what differentiates these sort of sugar baby, sugar daddy relationships from what we might call traditional prostitution. Also, Kirk, not only did Bill take out an insurance policy and made Nanette the beneficiary, he also changed his will. How complicated and common is that? With life insurance, we all have the ability to buy whatever kind of policy we want if we can afford that policy. And equally so, we have the right to choose whoever the beneficiary is. And I think also it's true that changing that policy might not be as common as, say, brushing our teeth. It is, in fact, something that could happen frequently enough that it wouldn't draw suspicion and only becomes really suspicious in hindsight. That's exactly right. It seems as though we see that so often. But again, numbers wise, that's such a common thing most people are doing that. I guess it's less common to change your will and take out a life insurance policy so quickly into a relationship if we were gleaning from other stories. But I understand the point. 
On the night of December 15, 1994, Bill came home to Newport from Las Vegas, where he spent every Monday through Thursday. Nanette had left a note in the kitchen saying that she'd gone to her son's soccer game and would be home late. Bill sat at the kitchen table working when an intruder came into the house and shot him six times in the chest. Upstairs was Bill's adult son, Kevin, who raced to his father when he heard the gunfire. The shooter was gone, but Kevin found Bill lying on the kitchen floor, bleeding to death. Panicked, Bill's son called 911, but by the time paramedics arrived, it was too late. 55-year-old Bill was dead. Nanette came home around 10 p.m. that night and discovered the horrific scene. When police arrived, they found the front door ajar, a key inside the lock. They were stunned at the brutality of the crime. Generally, Newport Beach is a very safe place. Here's Stephanie. And we hear that a lot. Newport is allegedly a very safe place. So this crime was very rare and therefore took over the whole community. Detectives immediately looked at Bill's inner circle. Kirk, I would assume that's very common. Immediate family is, you know, kind of up for conversation. And his ex-wife and two daughters, they were looked at and both had ironclad alibis and really had no motive to kill Bill whatsoever. They all had a really lovely relationship by all accounts. But what about Kevin? That's the son that called 911. Police apparently tested his hands for gunpowder and they were clean. And then as far as Nanette goes, she had been at a game that went into double overtime and then she apparently went shopping and she did have receipts for this. And it's not necessarily a minute to minute alibi, but she did have receipts and proof of her being in a certain area at a certain time. There was one person that did come up that was an associate of Bill's through work. It was a business partner who helped him develop a plasma device. That's the one that he became very famous for. His name is Hal Fischel. So Hal had sued Bill, but lost, and therefore had to give Bill $9 million, which is a huge amount of money. So there certainly could have been bad blood there, but that was just motive and a theory. Kirk, you have probably been in the hot seat for this so many times. When it comes to starting a, a list of suspects, how diligent are police at crossing people off the list? What would have been your process? Yeah, I think the typical process, and obviously different detectives are going to be more or less diligent with their behavior, but they're going to look at three main sources. They're going to look at motive, they're going to look at opportunity, and they're going to look at the evidence of the scene. Of course, the evidence of the scene really is an initial matter. You can only absorb what can be observed with the naked eye. Of course, later on, science will reveal more of the story in that regard. But motive and opportunity is, is a great place to start. Who was in his circle? Who was in his inner world? And who had the opportunity to commit this crime? And once you start looking at those things, you start eliminating people. And maybe as the crime scene develops and some of those things that only science can see come to light, then you might add more people to that list of suspects. If you lose a loved one to a crime so hideous and you're the immediate family, you want to speak up and speak out as quickly as possible to frankly eliminate yourself as a suspect so we can get on with it, right? And find the person at large. And sometimes we see in cases people lawyer up and it gets muddy really quickly because people maybe are afraid. 
But in this case, the family checked out very quickly and their relationship seemed positive, all things considered. He did have this bad dealing with his business partner, but by all accounts, love and money, is that usually the motive? Yeah, love and money are, are huge, typical motives of murders like this, especially when they're so brutal. They become a little more personal than the average murder. You know, we use this word a lot, ironclad. What does that exactly mean from a legal perspective? It's a matter of circumstance, but an ironclad alibi is really one that is unassailable. It shows you, you know, in a different place at, a, at, the, at the time of the crime, something that cannot be challenged, something that cannot be altered. I mean, in this case, for example, we talk about the phone call. Well, that was an alibi that seemed to be unassailable because there would be records to prove it, but ultimately there were no records to prove it. Therefore, the alibi could be contrived. Unassailable cannot be contrived, it can be proven. And by that you mean somebody could forge documents or make up receipts and things like that, as opposed to maybe in more modern times today, everybody has ring cameras and there's cameras everywhere. It's, you know, very possible to see a person's A steps, their B steps and their C steps through some sort of a camera. But in this case, these were, this was a little long ago, I suppose. When we think back to 1994, not everyone had a cell phone and the technology wasn't as developed as it is today. So when we talk about alibis as well, you know, we, there's cameras everywhere, certainly most of the places we go. But now technology is such that whenever we walk around with our cell phones, we are pinging off towers that give us, give police, give anyone who's interested a good idea of where we are at a particular point in time. Police went to talk to Bill's former business partner turned adversary. He was lead suspect at the time, but detectives learned he'd been in Santa Barbara the night of the murder, 150 miles north. There was no way he could be the killer. With no murder weapon, DNA, or fingerprints at the scene, detectives were back to square one. They wanted to take a second look at Bill's much younger girlfriend, Nanette, so they started with where she was the night of the murder. Nanette had, in fact, been at her son's soccer game, like she said, but police discovered she was not alone. Nanette stood on the sidelines with a man named Eric Naposky. Eric was a hulking former NFL linebacker. At 6 feet 2 and 225 pounds, he'd once played for the New England Patriots and Indianapolis Colts. Groin and foot injuries led Eric to retire from football following the 1992 season he moved to Orange County where he rented a studio apartment while finalizing a divorce from his first wife. Eric found work as a nightclub security guard and started with an exercise program for kids. That is where he met Nanette. What started out as a friendship turned into a romance on New Year's Eve 1993 when Eric and Nanette slept together for the first time. While his first love was football, Eric also fell hard for Nanette. To Eric, she was so much more than a pretty face. He liked that she was a hard worker and so driven. While Eric knew about Bill, Nanette had told him that he was simply her boss. Yes, she did live with him in Newport, but they slept in separate bedrooms. It was strictly platonic. These were not the only lies being told. Nanette also told Eric that she was the one who invented the plasma device. Yes, the same one that Bill had actually created years prior. She told Eric once she sold the idea, she became independently wealthy. 
How much of the truth Eric knew is unclear. When the police brought him in for questioning, he was evasive. Here's a portion of Eric's interrogation. What is your involvement or relationship? And then that's a pretty good friend of mine. Okay. Would you describe as a dating relationship, a boyfriend, girlfriend? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say a, a solo, total, like I have girlfriends, you know. By all accounts, this ended up being a very serious relationship. So we know now that Eric was lying to the police, covering for Nanette, and their relationship was pretty serious at this point. She had already met his family, and, you know, this was a budding something. But that's not all he lied about. He initially told the police that he never had access to a firearm. But then he later changed his story and said that he did, in fact, own a 9 millimeter, which was the murder weapon. And again, wasn't so forthcoming about that. Eric told police that he bought the gun for Nanette because she was scared for her safety. Here's a little excerpt of what he said to police directly. Where is your 9 millimeter? I have no idea. You have no idea. That's my statement. This, you know, sounds as though he's not being fully forthcoming and is obviously very nervous and scared. So sounds like in retrospect, we can hear that in his voice. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to lifelock.com slash iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at lifelock.com slash iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Both the guilty and innocent have the opportunity to not respond to police questioning. But not too many people take that opportunity and particularly so the guilty because they are worried that their more suspicion is going to be drawn upon them so they resort to what they often do and have done in life that has got them to this point in time is lie they feel like they can lie their way out of it in an effort to avoid further suspicion being cast on them is that a human behavior thing because you would imagine that you would just zip it or if this was something that you were planning, that you would have planned that piece of it. I mean, you obviously worked infamously with Jodi Arias, who has all of that footage that we've all seen of, you know, her spinning stories real time and, you know, her brain sort of talking to kind of seemingly make space for her to get her story straight in her head. The way they are saying something, is that as significant as what they are saying? And in this case, for example, as he's saying, frankly, lies, it seems as though you could hear it in his voice. You know, it can be. There can be 
verbal cues. There can be visible body language cues that indicate lying. Sometimes there can be a repeated pattern that detect that. But a lot of times, in early on in an investigation, in particular, the police don't necessarily know someone's lying. They let them talk to gather information and can go back later and discern whether that's a lie or not. But they certainly take advantage of that instinct. Steph, this goes to your question. The first part of your question is that there's this human nature of not wanting to draw more suspicion on yourself, both the guilty or innocent, right? Because the minute you decide you're going to not talk, what happens? Well, you think automatically they're going to be more suspicious of you because of your choice not to talk. And for the guilty, what's more frightening than having more suspicion cast upon you? So that's why I think so many people make that choice and think they can get away with it. Also, speaking of being dishonest from the start, what did Annette tell Eric when all of this happened? According to him, she denied ever being engaged to Bill. In fact, he didn't even know this relationship with Bill was a thing. When he saw the news in the headlines about Bill's murder and that he had potentially been murdered by his fiance, she just said it was a misprint. And he kind of wanted to believe that and went along with it. I always thought it was interesting how police allowed both of them to continue to interact, which seems like typically if there are two suspects who know one another, you would want to separate them so they don't have time to commiserate. What do you make of that? Well, you know, you have to think about it this way, Stephanie. They are just suspects. They're not under arrest. They're free to interact as you and I would. So there's really no distinction. The other thing I would say, though, is that in a situation like this, if police have the inclination that the two have conspired together to commit this crime, then having them together, probably having them under surveillance, see what kind of actions they do to assert their innocence or cover their crime, if you will, is something that could actually aid police in the investigation down the road, depending on the behavior of the suspects when they're together. Like in a reality show, you just sort of let people kind of get comfortable and do their thing. And in this case, if, you know, Nanette thinks she's in the clear or, you know, they're trying to go about their business, assuming that police aren't watching, I would assume that's when people get really sloppy. That's exactly right. I mean, that's when text messages can be exchanged and different things can be had. Maybe back then phones could be tapped, what have you, where further evidence can be gathered to make someone move from suspect to defendant. Shocking how people can go about their lives after. In general, I always find this fascinating and you've lived it so many times, I'm sure firsthand seeing this from a distance, is how people kind of just go about their lives in the days after such a traumatic event, guilty, not guilty, and keep it together. So this all seemed really bad for Eric, but he did have an alibi. According to him, the night of the murder, Nanette drove him home to Tustin, which is about 11 miles away after the soccer game. He changed and then headed back to Newport where he worked as a security guard at a local bar. On the way, he got a page from his boss. So he pulled over to the Denny's to use a payphone. And this is a very significant piece here. But what's significant here is that he called him from a payphone using one of those calling cards that we all used to do back in the day. According to his calling card bill, that was at about 8.52 p.m. At 9 p.m. is when the 911 call came through. Tustin to Newport is about 20 minutes of a drive. That seemed like, based on that timeline, that eight minutes between the time he made this phone call and the time of the murder wasn't enough time to accomplish this. So in a way that gave him an alibi. This seems like one of those issues where Eric wouldn't have had the opportunity to commit this crime. But the big caveat with that is if true, 
where were the records to support this claim? And is it really physically impossible for him to travel the distance in, in a lesser point in time? So if Eric's alibi was true, there would be a phone card bill, but also there would be probably some sort of a bill related to the pager that dictated exactly when the page that he's talking about that he re supposedly responded to came in. Also to that point, since this was back in 1994, and again, cell phones were not as readily available, if you had a pager, that wasn't pinning anybody as to your location, correct? It would still would have had to hit off a tower, I would assume. Now, I wasn't practicing law back then, but I'm sure it would have had to hit off a tower. Now, they would there probably was less of them than there are with cell phones, but it could have given some sort of signal at some point in time. And a time of transmission, I think, would would ultimately be there. Interesting point. And also the fact that he used a calling card at a payphone, also that could be argued that anybody could have used that calling card at that payphone and still have gotten the same alibi. But who knows? There are passerbys. You know, today that would probably be on camera. So people wouldn't get away with faulty alibis. While detectives were suspicious of Eric and Annette, they did not have enough to arrest him and so the case remained stagnant. About a month after the murder, Bill's daughters were looking into their father's finances. They discovered that someone had forged a check for $250,000 one day before the murder. It turned out Nanette had been the one to cash that fraudulent check. As the daughters kept digging, they discovered Nanette had embezzled over half a million dollars from Bill. She was charged with theft and forging a check. Six months after the murder, Eric broke up with Nanette and she was found guilty on the theft charges. The stunning blonde served 180 days in jail. Here's Stephanie. This really goes to show that family fights. And in this case, you know, Bill's daughters were not going to stand for it. And this new revelation about the money must have been extraordinarily painful. Now, when Nanette got out of jail 180 days later, she didn't really waste too much time getting back into the dating scene. She married a very wealthy businessman soon thereafter and got pregnant right away. Unfortunately, they divorced, but don't feel too sad about it because she met somebody else, also a very successful entrepreneur, and then had another baby. Meanwhile, Eric moved to Connecticut and went on to have two children of his own. More than 10 years later, in 2009, the police had reopened the investigation. This time, the new DA thought there was enough to charge both Nanette and Eric with murder. To the relief of Bill's family, both of them were finally arrested. What changed, they asked. Eric's former neighbor told police that Eric used to confide to her about his relationship with Nanette. According to this neighbor, Eric told her that Bill was assaulting Nanette and Eric wanted to blow up his plane. After the murder, when Eric's old neighbor asked him if he killed Bill, he smirked and said he might have. Finally, Eric told his neighbor he was a suspect because he owned the same type of gun that was used to kill Bill. The only problem with this was, the only people who knew what type of gun was used that night were the police and the killer. Here's Kirk. It kind of goes to Stephanie's point about getting sloppy with the passage of time, right? 
And I think one thing we can say about this conversation is that at this point in time, Eric has spoken to the police. He's gone through the investigation. He believes he has an ironclad alibi. So he's getting sloppy, if you will. He's having casual conversations that aren't under the scrutiny of the police. So he's a little less guarded in his conversations. And so he says things that are incriminating. Questioning when these things come forward, when these witnesses come forward is always something that even the police are going to do. They're going to look at with scrutiny because why is this person coming forward? If a case is highly publicized, people may want to be a part of it just to become famous or, or, or be a part of it in some way, shape or form. Right. So this is something that the police are going to take a great look at, too. Why, what is this person's motive for coming forward and why didn't they come forward earlier? Those are going to be questions that are going to be asked because obviously that goes to the truthfulness of what this neighbor is saying. That's an interesting point. In a case like this where a witness comes forward many years later, is that suspicious in and of itself because maybe they want to step into the limelight? Have you seen that over your career? You know, I never really saw it over my career, but I think we talk about famous cases like for instance, John F. Kennedy, I wonder how many people have confessed to killing John F. Kennedy just to get the attention associated with that. How many people confessed to crimes that are later found out that they couldn't have done it, these infamous crimes, Green River Killer, things of those nature. People come forward to confess just to get the attention. Oh, it's so complicated. Specific to this case, the police did in fact really look into the neighbor's testimony and therefore allowed him to appear in court. They found it to be notable and credible. So Eric's trial happened first. He hit this very big roadblock because he wanted to use his phone records to prove that he was at the Denny's at that specific time, the night of the murders. However, he had thrown away the phone bill. And at that time, the phone company didn't store the bills. So this now was not provable in trial, which is major, I would assume. Is that so, Kirk? Yeah, ultimately, any kind of objective evidence, evidence that's not coming from someone's mouth that has a particular outcome desired, is something that is, is impactful to a jury. But you go forward and just say you made this call without any support. Obviously, you have a motive to lie. Obviously, the, the alibi, whether it really ever existed or not, could be viewed with suspicion, could be viewed as contrived. So not having documents that supported his alibi making his phone calls made it harder for Eric to demonstrate his innocence to the jury. You can see both sides here. Imagine you're innocent and now years later, you're forced to find a receipt that is missing and you assume the phone company has records or that that was already pulled by authorities and now you find out that's missing. If you're innocent, this is the scariest moment of your life. And if you're guilty, then prosecution would suggest that the phone call from the payphone never actually happened. They actually did their own driving test and proved even if he had made that phone call, he probably still had enough time to be able to make the drive and commit the murder. I always find these types of tests that are done by attorneys on either side fascinating, specifically the driving test. And, you know, frankly, we've done some of that on our own as armchair detectives. Is that one of the first things an attorney would look at is, okay, here's the stage, here's the crime as detectives are laying out, and then you sort of go through the motions yourself to make sure it all checks out? 
Yeah, and as a defense attorney, you're going to want to do as much of the investigation as you can on your own to look at it with different eyes to make sure the police weren't using confirmation bias or something of that nature. So under these circumstances, you know, checking out Eric's alibi and reinforcing that with your own test, which is obviously not actually scientifically valid, if you will. There's no way to, uh, you know, replicate the exact conditions of that day. But you go forward and you have someone go do this test for you and offer that to the jury saying, no, this is impossible. And then the jury makes their, their determination based on those, in this case, time measurements in terms of the miles covered and the amount of time it would take to cover those miles. Because the crime itself in this situation was one that probably did not take but a minute or two for this actual killing to take place. Let's stop here for another break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The prosecution also looked at a major clue from the crime scene, the key in the lock. And apparently they knew this key was a freshly cut key from Ace Hardware. And there was, in fact, an Ace Hardware very close to Eric's apartment at the time. And believe it or not, the owner actually remembered Eric and said he used to make keys for him all the time. Is that circumstantial or is that incredibly significant in your opinion, Kirk? I think it's pretty significant because it ties Eric to something that was used to help facilitate the crime. I mean, it might seem innocuous. It might be something he does regular basis. But when you have something like that, that's a pretty powerful piece of evidence to show that this was something that he did. And this is how the entry was gained. You combine that. And of course, no piece of evidence exists in a vacuum. But you combine this with this statement about having a nine millimeter gun and only a few people knowing what that is, then the spotlight of suspicion uh, is really strong on Eric at this point in time. And perhaps now, in hindsight, police can also look at the fact that he initially lied about his relationship with Nanette in the first place, and then also lied straight to police about the gun. Now these individual moments are really turning into a bit of a pile. Yeah, ultimately, lies don't age well. And this is an instance of us seeing lies not aging well because the truth starts to impede the lies and display them as such. Yeah, as they always say, what happens in the dark comes out in the light. Then there was this other astonishing detail that police found a notebook in Eric's car that had Bill's license plate number written in it, which is 
kind of a pretty big tell. Eric told detectives that he had had a private investigator follow Bill because he was growing suspicious that Nanette was cheating on him at the time. Remember, from Eric's perspective, he didn't really know that Bill was a relationship. He only thought that was her boss. And I suppose was feeling a little worried about that, hires a private investigator, and that is his defense. The prosecution, of course, doubted this and says that he was actually following Bill and tracking him and doing so with the intent of murder. Either way, while this story is plausible, either one is, shows evidence that Eric is tracking Bill. Whether he did it himself or employed someone to do it, he is certainly interested in tracking Bill, knowing his whereabouts. He's beginning to view Bill as a romantic rival. And this goes back to earlier when we talk about motive and opportunity and what the crime scene shows. We see these three pieces coming together. The literal key that, that's part of the crime scene, the opportunity because his alibi regarding the phone bill is falling apart, and the motive, this romantic rival. And of course, we didn't hear from this private investigator at trial, leading us to believe that this is yet another one of Eric's lies that hasn't aged well. That was my big burning question. Where is this private investigator? And even if that private investigator was findable, would their testimony be credible? Do private investigators come into play a lot in trial? Well, certainly a defendant could call anyone they wanted to uh, in their behalf, in their defense. And a private investigator who is working to do a particular job could certainly be called. Now, it would be ultimately up to the jury to decide whether that person is credible or not. But if there is objective evidence of, you know, being hired, a retainer, uh, a log of what the investigator did, that would certainly substantiate the claims. And I really think if Eric had such a person involved, it would have behooved him to call this person a trial, which tells me that he probably did not. And if you were a private investigator hired by a potential murderer, you would likely speak up because this case was so wildly publicized at the time as well. So that could have been an eyewitness or somebody who was very relevant, who maybe would have gone to the police if they existed. But again, hearsay. Ultimately, you know, Eric being the person in this scenario that would have hired the private investigator would, would be the person who would ask him to come forward. Six months after Eric's trial, Nanette sat in the courtroom. The defense admitted that she was not a good person, but that did not make her a killer. Take a listen to the defense attorney speaking at the trial. Hate her as much as you want for being a thief, a liar, a cheat, a slut, whatever you want to call her. But you can't vote guilty based on that. Kirk, what is your reaction to that tactic? Well, ultimately, you know, when you're a defense attorney, you cannot choose the cards that are handed to you. You have to play the cards you're dealt. Nanette could not be cast as, as some sort of person of great virtue. She was, in essence, a sugar baby who was engaging in repeated behavior. So they had to acknowledge that behavior and had to say that is distinct from finding someone else to be a killer. Because it is true, one of the things juries are always instructed on is that bad character isn't necessarily evidence of a crime. It's so difficult. And that's the position I always try to put myself in. Even in your case, you know, so many people overlook the fact that as a defense attorney, a court appointed defense attorney, as opposed to a defense attorney retained for money by somebody who's fighting a trial, as in your case with Jody Arias, 
you know, you're appointed to the court, you get the files, you get the case, you get the subject, and then you have to do your job to the best of your ability and bias aside, right? So I would imagine as some of this stuff comes out in trials now years later, it must be maddening. But regardless, one of the prosecution's witnesses was a former software founder who said Nanette offered to invest in his business back in 1994, a month before the murder. So she allegedly told him that she really wanted to invest in his company and that in just a few months, in January of 1995 to be exact, she was going to come into a lot of money, enough money making her able to invest. Now, if you remember, Bill was killed in December 1994, and Nanette is claiming she would be coming into money a month or so later to somebody else. So the prosecution also had a witness come forward who said Nanette and Eric were also looking at very big, lavish mansions together. How would she have the money to do that? How could she possibly afford such a big house without Bill's money? The prosecution also argued they knew that they were going to kill Bill in hopes of getting a very big insurance policy and that they would be able to live happily ever after in these very fancy mansions and live the lavish lifestyle they had become accustomed to. Ultimately, this evidence is demonstrative of two important things. The first of all being premeditation. If you know that you're going to come into this money, it is because you're planning to kill your husband and benefit financially from that. So it shows that premeditated intent that's required of first degree murder. The other thing it shows is that there was the clear motive. Money was the clear motive for this. The, the Nanette was really this mastermind as she was exactly as she was cast at trial, that was this cold blooded human who would manipulate people like chess pieces on a chessboard to suit her ends that were always almost always financial gain. Also worth noting is something that always stuck out to us about this case too. At some point she was telling other people that she created this invention that Bill made all of his money doing, that she was the inventor of the plasma device and that the money was actually hers. That's what she was saying to Eric. So in Eric's mind, she had this very substantial lifestyle that was self-made, when in reality, of course, she would only have that if she actually murdered her fiance. What a great mask for her, because then instead of being a sugar baby, she becomes a sugar mama, if you will, or she is someone who is in, not in need of financial support. So rather than an NFL player, a former NFL player being suspicious of her motives, he accepts her at face value as being someone who is not after his money, when in fact she really was. So it was the perfect disguise, if you will. In this case, Nanette is sort of set out on a path to cash in, despite who gets in her way. Yeah, Nanette is completely driven by financial desires, period. Despite pleading their innocence, both Nanette and Eric were found guilty. At their sentencing hearing, Bill's daughter made a statement to the judge. Eric refused to leave his jail cell to hear it. Both Nanette and Eric were sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. And listen to season three of our hit series, The Piketon Massacre. New episodes air every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios.
Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.